0: Just a heads up Darksiders, this podcast may contain sensitive or explicit material, definitely not appropriate for little ears. Listener discretion is advised. Now, on to the show. Today's episode is the second part of the Bradford City Football Fire Disaster of which the first part aired last week. If you haven't heard that episode yet, I highly recommend that you do listen to it first. But, just to recap a tad, in the last episode, we heard the heartbreaking story of 12-year-old Martin Fletcher, who lost three generations of his family in the tragic fire at Bradford City Football Stadium on Saturday, May 11th, 1985. As I said last week, having grown up just a few miles from this incident, I had always wanted to cover it. This terrible accident, which at the time of it happening, was the worst tragedy in the history of English football. And that's exactly what I thought it was. It is what everyone thought. And it is what everyone in our region accepted. It was a terrible, tragic accident. Everyone, that is except for one little 12-year-old boy and his mother. It wouldn't be until the ninth anniversary of the disaster, when Martin was 21, that his mother would reveal something to him. Something so shocking that it sent Martin on a 15-year-long hunt to find the truth. This is Darkside, and I am your host, Sue's So what was it that Martin heard that was so shocking? What made him go on a 15-year-long hunt for answers, ultimately ending up in him quitting his job and writing a book to share his knowledge so that the truth, as he knew it, would finally be known? Hmm. Let's recap on that conversation he had with his mother. Martin, you're an adult now, so I'm going to tell you. But I'm warning you lad, you're not going to like what I've got to say. I never believed it were an accident and I never will. You do know this one Higginbotham's first fire, don't you? At the time of the incident at Bradford Stadium, Stafford Higginbotham was the chairman of the club. But Martin's mother, whom had worked at one of Higginbotham's previous companies, knew of his history, legacy and reputation in the city of Bradford. And it wasn't always a favourable one. But what did this have to do with the tragic accident at the Bradford City Stadium? Well, Martin started to look into his mother's claim, and he ended up going down a rabbit hole. Now, I must remind you, this was the 90s. We'd know it as a Reddit hole today. And, Darksiders... I just have to let you know that this was also at a time when the World Wide Web as we know it was just a twinkle in Sir Tim Berners-Lee's eye, so all the research that Martin poured himself into would require years of sitting in front of a microfiche machine in the library to go back and research his mother's claim. Martin trolled through microfiche year after year after year To go back to the very beginning, all the way back to the very first articles reported about Higginbotham. And his research discovered that Higginbotham had his name associated with a series of fires, which all spread incredibly quickly, produced an unbelievable amount of toxic smoke and devastation, and they all caught the fire brigade unaware. Hmm, suspicious to say the least... But even more staggering was the sheer number of them. So let's go back to where it all started. We're going to go all the way back to 1967. By 1967, Higginbotham had worked his way up in a soft furnishings company in Bradford from a junior salesman position when he started at the company in the 1950s to being a member of the executive team and now a stakeholder in the company. The company was unfortunately struggling financially. This was a time in British history when the economy was not stable and those that had, had And those that didn't struggled. Bradford City, whilst opulent and prosperous in the Victorian era, was now circumspect to economic decline, as was the fate of many post industrial revolution cities in the latter part of the 20th century in the UK. So let's start in 1967. Number one. On Sunday afternoon, 21st of May, 1967, fire engulfed the three-storey soft furnishings factory where Higginbotham worked. Higginbotham just happened to be present at the time of the fire, on a Sunday afternoon. He was surrounded by scores of local boys watching the inferno when the police arrived. The police were mystified as to how a fire might have started. It was a Sunday, there were no employees at work, and a post-investigation proved that there was no sign of a forced entry. At a time when the average national UK house price was £3,700, or 67000 by today's standards, the fire caused £25,000 worth of damage, almost £500,000 today. Thankfully, as it was a Sunday, the factory was empty and there were no casualties. Number 2 Less than a year later, on Good Friday 1968... Overtime staff at Tebro Toys looked out of their window as a black pall of smoke drifted towards their premises from a three-storey factory at the opposite end of the industrial estate. When someone went to investigate, they found what was described as a fire going like a bomb in the neighbouring building, which also occupied Tebro Toys and Jennifer, whose managing director was one Mr. Stafford Higginbotham. Hmm. I wonder where he got the money to invest in that company to begin with. Hmm. After this devastating fire that brought the company to its knees, Higginbotham, using the insurance money from the fire, invested to bring it back into fruition in 1971. However, Number three. By 1970, Higginbotham had founded a company called Matt Goods, and not too long after its inception, a fire broke out in the building. It started with an explosion in a storeroom that destroyed another £10,000 worth of foam rubber. That's £155,000 today. The fire brigade were not able to conclude the origins of the fire. Well, this was the early 70s, Fire research was in its infancy. Number four. But in December 1971, Castle Mills, which Higginbotham also owned, had a tenant fire. Although Stafford's tenants, a company called Free and All Packaging, a frozen food company, had an operable automatic fire alarm system one which the local fire chief said was responsible for keeping all fire damage claims below £5,000 over a 20-year period, the blaze saw £15,000 worth of damage. That's 213000 in today's money. Hmm. Where was he getting all this money from to invest in all these companies, I wonder? Number five. I mentioned previously that Higginbotham had recreated the desecrated, fire-stricken company that was Tebro Toys in 1971. Well, guess what? In 1977, six years after the revised company's inception, the extensive stock of soft toys was destroyed in a fire, providing Higginbotham with another sizeable insurance payout. And it just so happened, in 1977, the fire brigade went on strike over low wages. The strike was to last for nine weeks. But because of this strike, the Tedbro Toys fire was never investigated. Number six. Later, in 1977, A fire started at Yorkshire Knitting Mills, which had occupied the ground floor of the Douglas Mills building, which was owned by Stafford Higginbotham. Fortunately, the fire was caught quickly before it caused too much damage and too much insurance payout. Number 7 On Tuesday... 8th of November 1977, the front page of the Telegraph and Argus newspaper reported that Higginbotham was still at his desk around 6pm when he heard the sound of breaking glass. Thinking his car was being vandalised, he ran out, presumably to confront the vandals, only to find glass falling and flames bursting from the top two floors of the three-storey Douglas Mills the very same building that suffered a fire just earlier on in the year. The fumes breathed in by the first four firemen to arrive at this blazing toy firm were so toxic they were violently sick and required hospital treatment. Number 8 Four weeks later, on December 5th, 1977, A fire broke out at the Coronet Marketing factory, which threatened to devastate the industrial heart of Bradford City Centre. The fire crew thought they could control the flames, only to pull back after a series of explosions saw the four-storey building completely alight within two minutes. Coronet Marketing rented the premises from the council. They were an outdoor lighting manufacturer and a subsidiary of Tebro Toys, owned by, if you remember, Stafford Higginbotham. Although Higginbotham talked of moving production of Tebro Toys to Douglas Mills, he instead simply collected the fire insurance money and dissolved the company. His two biggest fires of 1977 saw him collect a striking total of £174,000 in insurance payouts. That's £1.1 million in today's terms. For those of you that may have lost count at this point, that is four fires that have occurred in Higginbotham's companies in 1977, a year when the fire brigade were on a reduced service because of the strikes and investigations were limited. Hmm. Convenient, eh? Number nine. Douglas Mills fell victim to yet another fire in June of 1981, and the building was still owned by Higginbotham. This time, a hundred workers had to be evacuated from a ground-floor plastics factory. But fortunately, no one was hurt. That is now the third fire at Douglas Mills. Number 10 Just four years later, in 1985, Higginbotham, now chairman of the Bradford City Football Club, stood on the pitch at Valley Parade on May 11th watching his stadium burn to the ground, hearing the torturous screams of the trapped and dying people caught in the inferno, the raging conflagration threatening to bring down the whole stadium as the wind blew molten debris and flames towards the other stands in the stadium. And whilst he stood there, watching the carnage in front of him, he claimed that the fire was started by smoke bombs thrown by fans. Could one man be so unlucky as to have ten fires in his history? And this is what Martin Fletcher wanted to know, and what he spent fifteen years researching. Was Higginbotham really just a very unlucky man, or was he something more deviant? Certainly there is no shortage of people that will act as a character witness for Higginbotham and will happily speak on his behalf. He did invest heavily into the city of Bradford, especially the commercial sector, providing thousands of jobs for the city dwellers at a time when the post-industrial economic doom still clutched the city, and the post-World War II economic constraints pervaded people's daily lives. He also obviously invested in Bradford City Football Club, which, had been on the verge of collapse and closure when he took it over, of which he rescued it from. But when you start to look at Higginbotham's history of fires and his ignorance of warnings, a more sinister picture starts to emerge. Now, I don't wish to cast aspersions, and I'm not saying that there was a deceitful connotation behind any of the fires. But what Martin uncovered over those fifteen years of research led him to believe that perhaps there may be a deviance involved, so much so that he wrote a book, 56, The Story of the Bradford Fire. And in today's story, I'm paraphrasing much of the content of Martin's book, so these are his words, not mine, and in covering his book, I'm in no way saying that I align or agree with his suggestions, and that's what they are for Martin doesn't actually point a finger at Higginbotham in his book. He merely lays out his research and lets the reader judge for themselves. And that is exactly what I'm going to do with this episode. I'm laying out the facts as Martin has presented them in his book, as well as evidence I have sourced, which isn't in Martin's book, and I will allow you to make your own verdict. Sorry, I had to put that little disclaimer in there. The book and subsequent actions and responses have stirred up both positive and negative media and public opinion. One just has to cover oneself. So, Martin has researched Higginbotham and discovered that prior to the Bradford City Fire, he had a staggering nine other fires in his past. Unlucky? Perhaps. Perhaps. The fires started in 1967 and went through to 1985, a period when fire safety, regulations and advice was fairly much limited to make sure not to leave the chip pan on and fire health and safety advice was relegated to well, if the chip fan sets on fire, throw a wet tea towel over it. So, not implausible that there could have been a series of fires, but when you dig a bit deeper, well, let's just say, things become a little murky. Just focusing on the first nine fires, they all happened when the buildings were either empty or occupancy was at its lowest, such as on a weekend or a bank holiday or the end of a workday, so thankfully no one was killed in any of these fires although several people were hospitalised. In most cases, the police and the fire brigade were unable to find the source of the fires, but many did not have any type of forced entry to the buildings, implying that the fires started internally, or... well, I'll just leave that thought there. Many witnesses to the fires report explosions, But the fires mostly took place in storage warehouses, where the products being housed, whilst flammable, would not cause an explosion, such as plush toys. All a bit suspicious, but can be deemed merely circumstantial. As I said before, it was an age of limited fire precautions and safety. But when you look into the economic situation of these companies, as Martin did. Well, for the most part, many of them were financially struggling and in a lot of debt. Again, the economy in the UK as a whole at that time was struggling, so it's not inconceivable to recognise that Higginbotham's companies were suffering from the same economic woes as the rest of the country. But all these fires, every one of them, Including Bradford, warranted hefty insurance payouts. And all the companies except one closed down after the fires and subsequent insurance payouts. Tebro Toys was the exception. He resurrected that company after the 1971 fire, but he wound it up after the 1977 fire. After the Bradford City disaster, the club received insurance proceeds and associated grants of nine hundred and eighty eight thousand pounds. Higginbotham had already recouped nearly a million pounds before his club was rewarded with a further gift of one point four six million pounds by the local authority, to take his total fire proceeds from the Bradford fire to two point seven four million pounds, or £27 in today's money. Higginbotham certainly seemed to be a one-man-walking nightmare for insurance companies. And that was the view that many people in the city of Bradford held, especially the police force and the fire brigade. In fact, when the fire brigade went on strike in 1977, they ran a book on who'd be the first man to have a fire in Bradford. Stafford was the favourite, and well, let's just say, he didn't disappoint. Just to give the next speculation a bit of context, I'm going to hop back in time to 1971 and take us up to Scotland. To Glasgow, where yet another unfortunate football disaster occurred, which to this day remains the worst disaster in Scottish football history. The Ibrox disaster, as it is known, happened as thousands of spectators were leaving the stadium by a stairway. Someone fell, which caused a massive chain reaction pile-up of people, which in turn caused 66 people to be crushed to death. As a result of this awful tragedy the Safety of Sports Grounds Act was introduced and was applicable to all four divisions of football teams, anticipating fires and including regulations that all combustible material must be removed from beneath stands. All voids on stairs and floorboards should be sealed, no one should be more than 30 metres from the nearest exit and the crowd capacity of specific terraces should be decided by their conditions, crush barriers, exits and stairways. And, most importantly to this story, all wooden stands should be capable of evacuation in two and a half minutes. I'm just going to pause here for a second. Two and a half minutes to evacuate a wooden stand. You will recall that in the previous episode, it took four minutes for the stadium to burn down. And as we know, not everyone was evacuated. 56 lives to be precise. So clearly, Bradford City had not been remodelled to meet the new regulations. Well, there's a reason for that. Because of the cost associated with remodeling the stadiums throughout the UK the act was to be phased in over time with divisions 1 and 2 taking priority due to their higher capacity numbers by 1979 the top two division of stadiums had been upgraded to meet the rules the bottom two divisions were due to be assigned in 1981 the bradford disaster happened in 1985 and yet the regulations had still not been imposed. Well, again, there's a reason for this. There was a general election, and a subsequent change in government, and due to this, the policy got held up and delayed, so that by the time of the Bradford fire, some four years later, in 1985, Divisions 3 and 4 still had not been designated to the Act. It took the Bradford Fire for Leon Britton, the then Home Secretary, to force an immediate extension of the Act to all divisions. But, as stated, at the time of the Bradford Fire, the Act had not yet moved to include the lower divisions. However, the standing question had come under scrutiny by local authorities. The club had received three separate warnings about the potential fire risk it held, two from the Health and Safety Executive and another from the local council. But Higginbotham did nothing. The authorities went on to condemn the stand, but still nothing was done to improve it. Now, at the time of the fire, as we know from last week's episode, The club were about to be promoted to the second division and, as part of this promotion, the club had to improve many aspects of the stadium to keep in line with the regulations for larger crowds and second division rules. These improvements included, amongst other things, replacing wooden stands with non-combustible ones. However, the club, Higginbotham, didn't make the changes. At the Popplewell inquiry, conducted just five days after the Bradford disaster, which lasted for a total of five days, it was evidenced that the club had been warned about the fire risk that the stand caused, but had failed to act, even citing that there were newspaper articles found in the burnt ashes under the stand that dated back to 1968 thus evidencing that proper regulatory procedures of cleaning under the stands had also not been observed by the club. Higginbotham denied that he received any letter from the health and safety executive, but he did admit to receiving a letter from the council informing him that the stand was unsafe. But still, he did nothing to improve it. Why would he stand at the inquiry and say he had not received two of the letters when it had been evidenced that they were sent to the club? And why, if you've admitted to receiving at least one of the letters, did he do nothing to improve the standards? Hmm. Beggar's belief. Following that inquiry, a test case was brought against the club by David Britton, a police sergeant serving on that day and also by Susan Fletcher, Martin's mother. The test case found that the council had failed in its duty under the Fire Precaution Act of 1971, and that the club gave none or very little thought to fire precautions, despite receiving warnings. The outcome of this test case resulted in over 154 compensation claims being addressed, 110 civilians and 44 police officers, by the injured or bereaved. There has been great speculation around the insurance money that Higginbotham received after each of his fires. They always seem to come at a time when the companies, or the club, were struggling financially and needed a cash injection. And as I previously mentioned, Higginbotham was known to the police and the fire brigade for the potential duplicity surrounding the origin of the fires, with local innuendos hinting that he was known to cause fires to cash in on them. And it's no secret that Higginbotham made considerable money in the aftermath of these fires from insurance claims. When Martin published his book in 2015, It was met with a frenzy of opposition and support. While some have berated the book as circumstantial and speculative, others didn't. In fact, they took it very seriously. So seriously that the West Yorkshire Police referred itself to the IPCC, which is the Independent Office for Police Conduct. The force said the referral comes after a senior officer met with Martin Fletcher and in a statement, the force said serious issues had been raised by the book relating to a number of agencies and organisations and would consider any new evidence regarding the Bradford fire. Even Andy Burnham, the former Shadow Home Secretary, called for a fresh investigation and inquiry. Burnham has been widely acclaimed for his campaigning around the Hillsborough disaster and he believed that the original inquiry for Bradford was not only flawed but happened too soon after the event. And also, the evidence provided by Martin Fletcher merited a new investigation. Sadly, on the 26th of January 2016, the IPCC declined calls for a new investigation. It claimed that the decision not to conduct a new investigation wasn't taken lightly, but it came as a result of detailed consideration of both Martin's concerns about the role of the police and from documents obtained from West Yorkshire Police, as well as evidence which is publicly available. Hmm. Seems a bit of a cop-out to me. The IPCC did state that, with hindsight, it was possible to identify things that the police could have done differently on the day, but significant learning was rightly identified at the time of the disaster and formed part of the evolution towards the modern-day approach to policing large events. Oh well, at least there's that. (laughs) So now... I've presented to you the evidence as outlined in Martin's book, all of which is compelling and covers some of the truth. I say, some. Because through research, my research, I have found some other information, information that casts a slightly different light on the book's inferences. What if I told you that Higginbotham didn't lie about not receiving the two out of three warning letters about the fire risk of the stand. Two of the three letters in question from the Health and Safety Executive were sent to the club in June 1981, at which time Higginbotham was not associated with the club. He had been chairman in the late 60s and early 70s, but had left in 73. He only became chairman again in 1983, two years after the letters were sent, and after the bankrupt club had been liquidated. He had bought up the assets and formed a new company to keep the team playing and the club going, thus rescuing it from collapse. The third letter was received, this time from the council in July of 1984. This is the one that Higginbotham admitted to receiving at the inquiry. Now, to give a bit of context to this next part, I want to tell you what football and stadiums were like back in 1985. Today, we see high-earning clubs and footballers with state-of-the-art stadiums and very high-paid footballers. But back in 1985, the Football Association was woefully underfunded. Clubs had to apply for grants for club improvements, and these often were rejected due to the lack of funds. At the time of the fire, it is known that Bradford City was struggling financially. So with no club money, and no money coming in from elsewhere, the club were ill-equipped to make the necessary upgrades to meet the standards of a Division 2 team. So, far from ignoring the letter from the council to improve the stand Higginbotham instead went to the sports ground trust for a grant and it was awarded just one day after the disaster occurred the very day Bradford City were officially part of the second division Higginbotham had arranged the part demolition of the main stand, the very one that had burnt down on that awful day just the day before, with the purpose of remodeling it to meet 2nd Division standards with monies provided by the Sports Ground Trust. Now, I don't work in construction, but even I know that to remodel an existing building using its current foundation and girders to support the new structure is far cheaper than demolishing a burnt-out shell of a building and having to relay a foundation and the steel structural support. And most importantly, the materials for the new stand had already been purchased. The order had been placed back in March, and in fact, were sitting in an empty part of the stadium waiting to be used the very next day, having already procured the needed materials. It does sound very strange to me that Higginbotham would then try and burn the stand down, meaning it would have to be rebuilt entirely from the ground up, incurring far more material expenditure and exceeding the already stretched budget from the Sports Ground Trust. The scheduled remodelling was supposed to take place immediately after the 1984 season, which was the day after the disaster, the day Bradford City were being promoted to second division and the stand would be ready for the 1985 season. However, because of the complete rebuild of the stand after the fire, it took that long to rebuild it that the stadium went completely unused for the 1985 season at a great financial loss to the club. It has also been suggested that Higginbotham knew he would make considerable insurance money should there be a fire at the stadium, and potentially this would go a long way to helping to pay for the stadium to be upgraded to 2nd Division standards. But as I mentioned, Higginbotham had come under scrutiny over the insurance claims during the two decades of building fires that occurred at sites under his ownership, with much public speculation, hinting at potentially nefarious intentions behind the fires. And this was never more prevalent than after the Bradford fire, where the combined payouts came to £2.74 million, or £27 in today's money, with some sources citing that even after all the refurbishments, Higginbotham walked away with £200,000 in his pocket. Or did he? (laughs) Yes, the club did receive insurance payouts, but the payouts weren't actually for the destruction of the stand itself. As Higginbotham had already arranged for the stand to be partially demolished just one day after the disaster to make way for the required improvements, the insurance on the stand was actually invalid due to the scheduled part demolition. The insurance money actually received was to cover damage to other facilities within the stadium that had suffered from the fire, other facilities that were still insured as they were not on the list to be upgraded for the 2nd Division standards. So why would anyone burn down a stadium that they weren't going to receive any insurance remuneration from. In addition, whilst Higginbotham did receive heavy insurance payouts from almost two decades of fires, he also invested heavily into the city of Bradford, especially the commercial sector, providing thousands of jobs for the city dwellers at a time when the post industrial economic doom still clutched the city, and the post World War II economic constraints pervaded people's daily lives. In short, he not only saved Bradford City Football Club from collapse, but also the city of Bradford. So, it doesn't seem that he was pocketing all the insurance payouts after all. Lastly, I'm not going to lie. The evidence of the many fires as outlined in Martin's book does seem suspicious. But the one thing that has stuck with me throughout this entire investigation into the disaster, and this is entirely my opinion and not voiced in Martin's book, not one of Higginbotham's fires up to 1985 killed anyone. They all took place when the buildings had either no staff there or limited staff. So, if he was the person behind the two decades of fires, why would he suddenly change the M.O. at Bradford in 1985, on a day when there would be the largest crowd on record for the club? And for the first time also, the media, all pointing their cameras at the pitch with the stand visibly seen behind? And why, for that matter, would Higginbotham risk a fire breaking out in the corner of the stand that was right next to the director's box, where he was sat, thus endangering his own life? And why would he risk the lives of his family, whom were all sat in the front row of the very stand that burnt down. Hmm. So, now I have provided you with a paraphrased, abbreviated version of the contents of Martin Fletcher's book, which, by the way, I highly recommend you read and it can be purchased on Amazon. But I have also provided information that I have sourced elsewhere, information that doesn't quite tally with Martin's findings. There are many more details to this story and other avenues that Martin explores within his book which unfortunately there just wasn't time to cover in the podcast even a two-parter. So I've kept the key areas of speculation and I've tried to offer up counter-evidence where it was available. So now it's time for you to make your own decision. Was the horrific fire at Bradford City Stadium a terrible accident? Or was it possibly an aggravated arson? You tell me. Oh, and before you make up your mind, I will share with you this last tidbit of information. The coroner of the Popplewell inquiry, James Turnbull, the one whom ruled that the tragedy was a misadventure. Well, he has read Martin's book, and obviously he witnessed all the evidence at the inquiry. And now, after reading the book, he has stated that had he known this information before, he would have given serious consideration to pressing manslaughter charges against Higginbotham. Unfortunately, Higginbotham died in 1995. So there you have it. Was the Bradford City Fire a nefarious, aggravated arson plot? Or a very, very tragic accident? What do you think? As a tribute to the victims and their families of the Bradford Fire, I will once again this week be signing off with the Bradford City's official song, and their chant, instead of the Darkside theme tune. But before I go, I'd like to introduce you all to one of my absolutely most favourite true crime podcasts, UK True Crime. Adam, the host, not only tells most empathetic and compelling stories, but every week the show starts with a quiz. One I've yet to win. And Adam has the most self-effacing sense of humour, which, trust me, only adds to his own unique brand of storytelling. So please, please, check out Adam's podcast at UK True Crime. Lastly, I'd just like to thank Lisa G 164 for the five-star review on iTunes. You, my dear, are a superstar. I'd also like to welcome and thank you some new countries to the podcast. So this week I'd like to thank... New Zealand. Hello and welcome. I'm so sorry. I could not find a casual greeting for your country online. If you let me know of one, I'll be sure to mention New Zealand again with a correct colloquial address. Singapore. Slamatpathong Tarima Cassi And Brazil Ola e Obrigado Again, my deepest apologies for an absolute obliteration of correct pronunciations, but as always, I just want to show my gratitude. If you like today's story or this podcast, please don't forget to rate and review. You would be making one little podcaster who is still in lockdown and still in a snowstorm, very happy. And come join me on my Facebook group and Instagram. Just look up Darkside. Come have a chat. I'd love to talk. So until next time, stay safe. Stay alert. Suze.
1: Over and out.